as we as we get ready to open God's word together, would you uh, would you pause and pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, your word here in the Gospel of Luke. And as we turn back to its pages, we just ask that you would help us, that your spirit would illuminate the word that you've given, that you would open our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, um, that we might hear the word that your spirit has to say to us, his church. Um, so we ask ask for your help in this time. We thank you for the gift that it is uh, that you have revealed yourself and that you have made yourself known through your son and and through his word. Um, so we pray uh, over this time as we as we open the text, as we exhort and encourage one another, uh, and as we respond in joy to what you have said. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, all right. One thing I have learned uh, since having children um, is that it does not take much to make little kids happy. Um, it also doesn't take a lot to make them like have a total meltdown and be screaming either. But that's kind of beside the point. Um, but when they're when they're enjoying themselves, right? When they think something's funny, when they're having fun, um, that that happiness doesn't really stay inside them very long. It it bursts out. They express it. Uh, if I am if I'm tickling Lewis or I'm making funny faces at him at the table, um, he he just starts like cackling and squealing with laughter. Uh, sometimes I have to go over and check on him to make sure he's still breathing properly because he's he's just wheezing so hard. Um, the other day, Elizabeth had some plans with some friends, and so we had like a dad and boys night at the house, and we got some pizza, and we played a couple rounds of Uno and watched some superhero cartoons. Uh, and at some point in the evening, Gilbert just shouts in the middle of the in the middle of the living room, "This is the greatest night of my life." <sighs> And it, like small joys, right? Small, simple pleasures like Uno and and Justice League. Um, one of one of my favorite uh, times of the week is when I get to take Coleman to to soccer practice, and I love watching what happens to his face when he scores a goal. Right, like his face is all concentrated. He's trying to to steal the ball back, find open space, get the shot, and then when he realizes. I just put a shot on goal and the ball's starting to roll in. When it crosses the line, it hits the net. Like the eyes get huge. His face just breaks into a big smile. He's like goes tearing back towards his teammates and they are all just like shouting and clapping each other on the back and just hugging each other. Normally the coaches then have to like snap them back to attention because the other team is coming the other direction and they're still in a dog pile of celebration, just congratulating each other on the goal. Um, but if if you stop and think, you can probably remember some like moments of just sheer happiness like that, that just where where joy just kind of burst out of you, where you couldn't keep it inside. Uh, I, maybe it was maybe it was it was Christmas as a kid, or even or even Christmas now, spending it with, as a family, uh, opening gifts together. Maybe it was uh, it was getting your first car, or the day that you got married, or it was it was a, an event, a, a show, or a game or a, a concert that you had been looking forward to for years and you finally got to go see, but just times of just being like ridiculously, uncontainably happy. You just couldn't, couldn't keep it inside. But I think I've also found um, that it feels like those moments happen less and less as you get older. Um, the, the expressiveness of them 
happens less and less as you get older. Like there's definitely times in my in my adult life that I've I've had these moments. I I woke Elizabeth up in the middle of the night jumping up and down on the bed when the Capitals won the Stanley Cup. Um I was not a child then. Um and uh there's 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 definitely time when like that happens. But I just feel like the tendency is for those occasions to get fewer and further in between. Why is that? Um, it's not because life gets worse. Like, my life is more enjoyable now with a wife and three kids to share it with than it was in college. Like, I, you could give me a hundred chances and I wouldn't trade the life that I can enjoy now for the one that I had then a hundred times out of a hundred. But if I think back to those times, there was probably more times when I, it was at least like once a week that my sides hurt from laughing so hard and just more times of just doing stupid, ridiculous things because we were just having a blast and just couldn't, couldn't contain it and just expressing how much fun we were having. Um, but, but like, so, so life isn't less delightful now. I think the problem is that we just grow less delighted. Our hearts become harder to delight as time goes on. It, it doesn't take a lot to delight my kids. Uh, making silly faces at them through the window while I pump gas is about all it takes. Um, but I imagine it would probably take more than like pizza and Uno for you guys to just scream, I'm having the greatest day of my life. Wouldn't, wouldn't it? Like you would, that, that bar would be a little low. I, I mean, it seems like for some reason we've, we've almost kind of built up an immunity to being delighted. Um, I, I play, I play soccer as well. It's one of the reasons I'm sitting on the stool right now. Um, and, and like my teammates and I, we, we score goals too, but we don't celebrate like Coleman and his do. Um, when we score goals, we're like, Hey, no big deal. Like make it make, just act like we do this all the time. And, uh, yeah, just no surprise back to business. Um, like we're, we're happy, but we just don't rejoice nearly as often or as expressively. Why is that? Like, why does it seem like we just try to keep a lid on our joy that we try to temper it and minimize it and only kind of let it out in, in small kind of controlled doses? It could be, it could be that we, we've just, we just learn self-control as we get older. Like if I'm, if we're walking through Walmart and Gilbert sees a toy that he wants and he just starts screaming at the top of his lungs and running up and down the aisles and is like throwing things in the air. Like I'm going to pull him aside and stop him and say, Hey, there's better ways to express that. There's more constructive ways to express that excitement. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that's a sufficient explanation for what's going on. Um, I don't think we suffer from an overabundance of self-control. Do you? Like we lack self-control in most of the areas. Like we, that's probably not our problem. Um, instead, it feels like we've just kind of been conditioned to be unimpressed. Uh, we've been trained to resist delight, uh, almost as if we're like too mature to express unrestrained joy. Um, like, like sometimes we, we feel joyful for sure, but we, we let it out in kind of controlled measured increments because somewhere inside of us, I think all of us possess the belief that bursting out with expressions of joy is a childish thing to do. I think, so, we, I think we, we believe that somewhere inside that that, that kind of joy is childish. Uh, and it's a belief that we've been learning for a long time. 
uh, I've, I've told many of you this, but, but one of my favorite weeks of the year is sports camp that we do every summer. I've been doing sports camps every year since I was in high school all over the world. And one of the things I've noticed, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you can be doing soccer clinics, you can be doing vacation Bible school, you can be doing day camps, you name it. And you can be doing it here in Dartmouth. You can do it. You can be doing it in Brooklyn, New York, or Berlin, Germany, or Lima, Peru, uh, and, and, I have seen in all of those contexts, in all of those places, there's one universal truth that's that's consistent across the board, which is this. Around age eight or nine, kids think, this camp is the greatest thing that exists on planet Earth, and this is the highlight of my existence since I arrived here. And then at like age 11 and 12, kids think, this is super lame, and I will seem really cool if I pretend I have no interest in being here, and I'd rather remove my fingers with screwdrivers. Um, like, that's, that's the, the, I don't know what happens uh, in those ages. Like, what happens there? Um, you can blame changing hormones. You can blame uh, like moody adolescence and all of that stuff, but I don't think that's really the issue. I think we have taught kids that. I think we've modeled that maturity means a resistance to being delighted. Uh, that maturity looks like restrained, tempered expressions of joy. That being grown up means being hard to impress. That it means feeling happiness and delight and joy for sure. But when you do, like making sure that you let it out in like a muted, mostly contained manner, which makes me have to kind of like stop and ask the question, is that really maturity Uh, or could that possibly just be immaturity in disguise? Are we missing something? Because I think the, the person of Jesus in the pages of the scriptures, I think the Jesus that we meet in the gospels flies directly in the face of that notion. I think if if you get to know Jesus in the Gospels, which is what we're trying to do as we walk through Luke, uh, I think you're going to have to conclude that Jesus is just really, really happy. Uh, Jesus is a is a happy king. That the kingdom of God is a joyful kingdom because it's ruled by a joyful king. And and I think that is that is Luke's main point in this passage that Sterling just read for us. That the arrival of Jesus elicits great rejoicing. Look at what we see here in the text. Uh, the, the angel Gabriel has just visited Zechariah the priest and told him that his wife Elizabeth would have a son named John. Uh, Elizabeth, even though she was old and unable to conceive, becomes pregnant uh, because, as she says, the Lord uh, showed favor or showed grace to her. Then the angel comes to a young, unmarried virgin girl named Mary and tells her that she is also soon to have a son named Jesus, that he's going to be the son of the Most High, that the son of God himself, uh, that he's going he's gonna to rule the throne of his father, David. Um, and, and why was Mary chosen for this? The same, same thing Elizabeth exclaims, because the angel says she has found favor or she's, she has been shown grace by God. This is where we've been for the last few weeks. Um, we've, got, we've got two women, one who's unable to conceive because she's old and barren, and one who is also unable to conceive because she's a virgin. Both of them are shown the grace of God and become pregnant with sons, uh, because like Gabriel says, nothing is impossible with God. And so we have Mary's son, Jesus, the Messiah, the the long-awaited deliverer and king. And then we have Elizabeth's son, John, who's the long-awaited prophet, the one who's coming to proclaim the arrival of this Messiah, the arrival of this king. 
Uh, and and Luke tells us here that that Mary, being a relative of Elizabeth's, hurries off after she's been given this news to go find Elizabeth. And when she arrives at the house, look what happens. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, being John, leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is why I'm saying that the main point in this section is that the arrival of Jesus elicits great rejoicing. Because this Jesus, this joyful king who rules a joyful kingdom, he so much cannot wait to begin overflowing with joy. His his joy is so uncontainable that it begins pouring out of him and shaping all those who come near to him before he's even born. Right? Like, Jesus is in Mary's womb in this passage. He hasn't been born yet. Jesus has only just been conceived. Uh, Jesus is about the size of a blueberry in this passage. And before he's born, before his toes and fingers take shape, before his internal organs have a chance to form, what is he doing? He's eliciting joy in others. Every, every Christmas, we pause and marvel at Jesus, the infant baby Jesus in the manger who elicits such rejoicing and adoration from the shepherds and the wise men and the angels. But back up even farther, before Jesus was, was infant baby Jesus in the manger, he is little blueberry-sized Jesus in Mary's womb. And he's doing the same thing. He's already eliciting joy and adoration from Elizabeth and from Mary and from mango-sized John that's in Elizabeth's womb, right? Again, like, continue in, in the text here. Baby John leaps with joy when Jesus comes near. His mother Elizabeth cries out with a loud exclamation. And what, what are verses 46 through 55? Look at, look, at your, look at your text. Verses 46 through 55, what's going on in those verses? Mary, Mary's singing. This is a song of praise. Mary bursts out into a song of praise. It, all before Jesus is born. Mary starts, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The arrival of Jesus elicits great rejoicing. John leaps, Elizabeth loudly exclaims, Mary rejoices. Why why is this? Why does Jesus spark joy? This afternoon, I want to look at three reasons, three reasons why Jesus elicits joy in us. The first of those is that God rejoices in himself. God rejoices in himself. This is the first reason that Jesus' coming ignites joy in those around him is because Jesus is God and God is joyful. Joy comes from him. Joy finds its source in God. And God has always been been that way. He's always been joyful because his joy is in himself. Now, I, I hear people say all the time by way of encouraging each other, it's not entirely wrong, but I hear all the time people say, God, God's delight is in you. He takes great joy in you. And when I hear that, I want to say like, yes and and no. Um, like it, it, yes, it's true. Is it true that God delights in us? Yes. The scriptures tell us that he, he delights over you with singing. And that is, in, that is incredible that God would look at us and respond with joy. But if we really want to understand that, if we really want to be able to know and believe that God takes delight in us, we have to start here understanding that God's delight is first in himself. 
that God delights in himself. That's why his joy doesn't change. That's why it doesn't fade or fluctuate, because it's it's not dependent on us. It's not circumstantial. It's not dependent on anything. How do we know that? Because God has been joyful before anything else was. God, God was taking joy in himself before anything else existed. There wasn't anything to take joy in. Only God was there, and he was delighting in himself. God eternally existed before anything else, and the Father was delighting in the Son. And the Son was delighting in the Spirit. And Christ and the Spirit were delighting in the Father and the Father in them. And this has been going on for, for eternity past. Uh, look, look where we see that kind of here in the text. Luke tells us that, that John in Elizabeth's womb is filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, that was, in, that was in verse 15. We looked at a few weeks ago. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Then he tells us that, that John leaps and his mother Elizabeth is what? Is filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 41. And she exclaims with a loud cry. So in, in other words, the, the leaping and the shouting, the leaping and the exclaiming, is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one leaping and exclaiming and shouting with joy because Jesus has come near. It's being done by those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Why does he respond that way? That's what the Spirit does. That's what the Spirit's been doing for all of time. He magnifies the Son. He exalts Jesus. That's what the Father does too. Rejoices over and delights in the Son. This is what they've been doing since before the world was made. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of the arguably the greatest preacher to ever walk the earth, uh, said, said this, See how divinely they work together, how the Father glorifies the Son, how the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, how both the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus glorify the Father. These three are one, sweetly uniting in the salvation of the chosen seed. Let us consider what the Holy Spirit aims at. What is the Spirit's aim? What is his objective? What is he trying to do? Well, he aims at this, Jesus says, he shall glorify me. When he shows us the things of Christ, his object is to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit's object is to make Christ appear to be great and glorious to you and me. The Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely glorious. And the Spirit's desire, the Spirit's joy, is that we may see and know more of Christ, that we may honor him more and glorify him more. This is what the Spirit of God has been doing since before creation, and joy is sparked in us when we are invited into that when we are invited into the joy already being shared in God. So why does Jesus's arrival spark joy? Well, first, it's because God has been, always will be, and is joyful in and of himself. And then secondly, it's because he's done great things. In our text, Mary gives us, gives us this very clear reason why Jesus sparks joy, because he has done great things. God has done great things. Look at the list that she puts together of things that God has done. Verse 48, he has looked with favor on his servant. Verse 49, she says, straight up, he has done great things. Verse 50, he's shown mercy to all generations. 51, he's scattered the proud. 52, he's toppled the mighty and exalted the lowly. 53, he satisfied the hungry. 54 and 55, he's helped Israel, keeping his promise to their fathers. These, these things elicit joy. Mary gushes in song out of joy for the fact that God has done these things. And, 
like this is reason to rejoice, right? These things that Mary listed, they're, they're cause to rejoice. He's scattered the proud. He's toppled the mighty. He's exalted the lowly and satisfied the hungry. Don't those things merit a joyful response? Don't they warrant joy? Like, this is both an act of God's might and his mercy. There's kind of two sides to this coin. He's done this in his might and in his mercy. He's done these great things. And that reversal of the, of the mighty being toppled and the lowly being exalted is, is reason to rejoice. If you're, if you're not sure of that, if you're not sure that that's something to rejoice in, consider the alternative of it. Uh, so two of my hobbies, two things that I love uh, spending my time doing. One is sports. I think you guys know that. I love to play them, watch them, talk about them, play virtual fantasy games based off of them, right? Um, and I love history. I love studying history. I love reading biographies and watching documentaries and visiting historical landmarks. Um, in in college, I, I played soccer, studied theology, and minored in, in European history and just kind of brought them all together, right? Because sometimes, the, here's what I love. I really love when when those things converge, when sports and history converge. When I was in Berlin, I got to go see uh, see a soccer match played in the stadium that Hitler built, the one that Jesse Owens ran in in the Olympics. Because uh, that's, that's one of those places that history and sports frequently converge, that they intersect, is in the Olympics, um, or in the World Cup every four years, these international competitions that have been played for years and years, and they often happen against the backdrop of major world events. Um, and one of the things that's true about the, both the Olympics and the World Cup is it's a really big deal who hosts. Like for years in advance, countries are like, they're submitting bids and plans and proposals trying to win the right to be able to host the, the Olympics or the, or the World Cup. Like major world leaders get involved in the process and kind of lend their support to their, their country's plan and proposal. Because it's a, it's a big boost for the economy, right? Like tons of marketing dollars come in. People travel from all over the world to watch the games. You've got a, a boost to, to tourism and hotels and restaurants and all of that stuff. Essentially, for a month, you've got the most famous athletes from around the world in your home country, and the eyes of the world are watching them. And so, so people lobby and, 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 and compete to host these games. But there's there's a tragedy, there's a sad sadness if you go back and look at some of the places that have actually hosted in the past. Um, there are like whole villages that were built, like villages and communities that were built for the games to house people and visitors and athletes, and now they're just like abandoned. They're just ghost towns. Um, they were once like the crown jewel for prosperity and opulence, and the whole world looked and was like, wow. Like, look what they've done. Um, and they're they're empty now. Now they sit as kind of like old scars and reminders that to the local people that they've fallen on harder times since then. Now, there like there's some places that have been awarded the games and, and it's been a, a big benefit. The community has enjoyed the benefits. The youth sports programs have all been enhanced. There's parks and facilities and infrastructure that's all been improved and people are continuing to enjoy them long after the closing ceremonies. But there's there's other places that have been given that same boost, that same shot in the arm of of income coming in. And it's just kind of dried up overnight. Um, like if you take water and pour it out on the hot sand in the desert in the middle of the day, like it just 
dries up and evaporates. And usually these are places that are just built on corruption. Um, they're places with like really top heavy economies where this, the same influx of money has come in. Uh, but what happened was the rich got richer and the hungry got hungrier. Uh, the mighty saw their might increase and the lowly stooped lowlier. And we see stories like that happen all the time. And that's a tragedy. Like that, it is, it is lamentable when the mighty get mightier and the lowly, the hungry go hungrier. But that's kind of how we're used to things happening on this rock called earth, isn't it? Like we've kind of gotten used to it. We've gotten used to the rich being filled and the hungry sent away empty. What would it take to reverse that? Like we're we're not always sure. Like economists have been trying to figure that out for ages and they haven't cracked it. And so we we kind of live in that tragic reality. But when we we read this song of Mary's praise, she is saying the exact opposite that he has done great things, that he has satisfied the hungry with good things, and that the rich are the ones sent away empty, that God isn't content to live in that tragedy, that he topples the mighty and scatters the proud and exalts the lowly, Uh, that he does this. We see him do this in the life and work of Jesus as Jesus ministers to and uplifts the least of these. We know that he that he ultimately accomplished this accomplishes this in the new creation, and that is cause for great joy. That he has done, is doing, and will do great things, um, and these great things make Mary rejoice in God, her Savior, who is also her Son, and they should make us rejoice in Him as well. And then I think, thirdly, Jesus elicits joy in others because Jesus is joyful. Jesus elicits such joy. He calls out such joy in others because Jesus possesses such joy. The first miracle that Jesus ever did was to turn water into wine so that a wedding could be celebrated more heartily. The the writer of Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus is anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all his companions. Like if Jesus and his friends stand next to each other, there's one category that just sets Jesus apart. And if you look at him, it's like, man, Jesus is just heads and tails, heads and shoulders above all the rest in how glad he is, in how happy he is. Do you think about Jesus that way? As just supremely joyful? Later in in the same letter in Hebrews, we're told that it was actually even for joy, for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross, because Jesus is a happy king. The the Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton wrote about this in his book, Orthodoxy. He says that he calls Jesus uh, the tremendous figure that fills the Gospels. Um, And he says that he, I I love the way he phrases it. He says that he towers above all other thinkers who ever thought themselves tall, which is just a a great way to say that. Um, And what he, what he wonders, what he's kind of wondering at is that there's, there seems to be something that Jesus is almost concealing, something that he can't quite show us the full measure of because it would just be too overwhelming. He says like the Stoics, they, they've, they hide their tears, right? They pretend that, they, they're not affected by it. They hide their tears. But Jesus didn't. He showed them openly and plainly on his face. 
he, he says like diplomats, they, tr- they try to restrain and hide their anger. But again, he's like, Jesus didn't really hold back. Like he told the Pharisees, uh, what was what, and even like threw furniture out of the temple when it was, was being abused. Uh, and then Chesterton says this, yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence that there was in that shattering personality, a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I've sometimes fancied that it was his mirth, that it was his joy, that it was his gladness, that if it had been revealed in full, it would just be too much to handle. He's theorizing that Jesus could only reveal in part his joy because the fullness of it would just be, would be too great and can actually only be revealed in the coming of the kingdom. And that, that, that thing, that elusive thing is Jesus's joy, which is, is kind of where we started here walking through this passage, seeing that here in Luke, that the, the thing that's just waiting to burst out of Jesus, the thing that can't even wait until he's born to start moving and acting and touching the people around him is Jesus's joy. That in Mary's womb, his joy was already at work, that it was already producing joy in John and Elizabeth and Mary. And that only grows, that only grows through Jesus's life until like we saw in Hebrews, it's for the joy set before him that Christ goes to the cross, that he purchases salvation, that he defeats sin, death, and the devil in joy. These things that Mary sings praise about, the great things that God has done, these works of his mercy and his might, Jesus does those things in joy. It's Jesus's joy that does them. They're the work of his joy. It's his gladness that topples the mighty. It's Jesus's mirth that exalts the lowly. So what do we need to do in response to that? What, what is our response to, to Jesus's joy? What is our response to the things that, that Luke tells us here in this passage? I think the first thing that we have to do is aim lower. Here, here's what I mean by that. Embrace lowliness. Humble, humble ourselves. I, I, I don't mean stop trying so hard. I don't mean like lower the bar and lower the standards. Uh, we are talking about striving. By, by all means, we need to strive. We need to work. We need to contend. We saw that as we walked through the letter from Jude, right? Contend for the faith. Labor. Have a goal. Have a purpose. Aim at something. Intentionally aim and target and shoot at something. But what are you aiming at? Like what are you shooting for? Maybe think about it this way. If you got everything you wanted, if tomorrow you woke up and you had everything that you've been working for, what would you have? What would that look like? Because I think for most of us, it would look like having more control. Uh, We're working to get more control, to get more security, more influence, uh, to be able to have a little bit more of a say in the outcome of our lives. We just want to leave our mark to be proud of what we accomplish, to be successful, make a little bit more money, make enough to be to be safe or comfortable. Maybe you're thinking like, I don't need a fortune. I just want enough riches to be able to enjoy life a little. I'm not, I'm not asking to rule the world. I just want a little bit of control. I just want my position in life to be a little bit stronger and more secure. I just want to play a little bit bigger role in the story, right? Here's the problem. Like if that's, if that's what we're working for, Here's a problem. 
my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the Mighty One has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. If you got everything that you were aiming for, would would you get the kind of things that end up scattered and toppled by Jesus? If that's true, why are we working for it? Why are we aiming for it? Why not work for something that's going to be exalted and satisfied? He's looked with grace on the humble condition of his servant. He's exalted the lowly. He's satisfied the hungry. So let's aim at lowliness. Let's shoot for lowliness. Are you aiming for thrones and riches? Or for hunger, lowliness, and servanthood? Are you aiming for notoriety and success in your career? Or are you aiming for just good, honest work and anonymity? Do you, do you think about your marriage or your singleness and ask, is it too much to ask for me to just be given someone who fulfills me, someone who, who spoils me a little bit and gushes over me? Or, or are you asking in your marriage and your singleness, how can I make myself nothing? Like, what, what plans or preferences can I lay aside so that God can do the work that he wants to do or bless others through where he has me at? How, how about in your church? Are you aiming for your needs to be met, trying to figure out how to find the right leaders and programs and building and, and funding and music and, and the care that you, you need and want and deserve? Or are you aiming to just find the least desirable role available and serve there? Aim lower. Because one of these things gets scattered scattered and toppled. And the other one gets satisfied and exalted. And I just think I think we're angling for the wrong one most of the time. That's why why one of our core values at King's Table is own the ordinary. That's what we're talking about. Uh, we've Steve and I have used this analogy before, but in, in case you haven't heard it, this is the kind of people that we want to be. If our city is throwing a parade through the streets, if there's a a giant celebration, an event that all of our neighbors are going to be out attending, and the city gathers all of the churches together, and they say, like, we need your help, okay? This is a big event. We need your help. We need a few churches to set up booths and man them with volunteers, have, like, literature and handouts ready to share more information about your church. We've got a lot of new people moving to the area who who are looking for places of worship, and we just want them to know more about, like, what faith communities are available to them in, in this area. So we, we need some churches to volunteer to do that. Um, we also need a couple churches to build and design a float for the parade. Like, just put your the name of your church on the side, maybe have some of the kids from your kids' ministry ride on top and, like, wave at everybody going by. Um, but we we really want to make sure that we do this this right, so we need enough floats to make a good parade. So it'd be a huge help if if some of you would sign up to, to do a float. Um, we also need a few churches to, to pass out waters and, like, other kinds of refreshment through the event. Um, oh, and, like, everybody, make sure that you wear your church T-shirt so that, so that people can ask you, oh, do you go to that church? And you can give them more information about that. 
oh, but then also, um, we need one church. Uh, at the at the very end of the parade, after the floats have gone by and the fire trucks have gone by, the RCMP is going to come last, uh, like riding horses. Uh, and we just need some people to walk behind the parade with some shovels and bags and just clean up after the horses. Um, and don't don't bother wearing your church shirt because we're gonna we're gonna give you shirts that just say like animal waste removal. Um. So like first come first serve you guys just you guys just let us know what your church is available to help with. Um my promise to you is that if I am sitting in that meeting my hand will shoot up in the air before anybody else's and I will say hey over here uh put us down for poop scooping. Um that that is the kind of people that we want to be. Um why? Why is that? It's cuz we have a king that exalts the lowly. <laughs> We have a king that satisfies the hungry. We we have a king that took the form of a servant and did it with joy. Why would we aim for anything else? Why would we aim for anything except the bottom so that our king can lift us and exalt us and satisfy us? That's what we that's what we see happen in his word. That's what we're shooting for. Lowliness. Aim for the bottom. I think the second thing, the second right response to Jesus in this passage is really simple. It's to rejoice, to take joy in Jesus. The arrival of Jesus elicits great joy. This is the proper response. This is what John does, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Elizabeth does, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit does and has been doing since the beginning of time. The the Spirit rejoices in Jesus. Mary rejoices in God. Is your default response to God one of joy and rejoicing? Is that your default response? Um, Jesus was a joy to be around. He, He wept and he grieved. He confronted and he challenged, but he was a joy to be around. People moved towards Jesus, regardless of what was going on. When things are sad, are you a comfort to be around? Do people gravitate towards you when things are sad because you are comforting? When when things are happy, are you fun to be around? When things are happy, do people gravitate towards you because you make others joyful like Jesus did? Um, you you've probably heard this before. You might have even said it yourself. Um, I I think it's really unhelpful and actually like an an untrue statement when we say our joy doesn't depend on circumstances. Um, you've probably heard it when we that that people kind of like separate joy and happiness, and then they say happiness kind of rises and falls with circumstances, but joy doesn't. Joy is just kind of constant and and stable, and we can experience that as Christians, even if happiness goes up and down. Um, I don't think it's helpful or true. I don't know. I'm not really sure what like precedent or license that we have for like dividing joy and happiness. I think that the two go together. I think the the thing that we have to remember is not that joy is unaffected by circumstance. I think the thing that we have to remember is that the gospel is the one big permanent circumstance that we live in. Like joy is very much affected by our circumstance, but we who are found in Jesus live in the one big permanent circumstance of the gospel. The, the immediate circumstances change. Our situation in the permanent circumstance of the gospel doesn't. Uh, do you live and act and react according to the immediate circumstances or the permanent circumstance that we, that we live under? 
I, I think it's unhelpful to phrase it that way because I think we just know it's not true. Like we just know it's like, no, I, I am affected by my circumstances and okay. You can say I'm not, but like we are all affected by our circumstances. That's true. We are, we're affected by the circumstance around us. But if you are in Jesus, here is the circumstance around you. God delights in himself. He has done great things and Jesus is unparalleled in gladness. And you have been invited into all of that. That is the circumstance that we live in that surrounds the immediate circumstances of our day. So rejoice. Rejoice regarding, regardless of the immediate circumstance you find yourself in. Do you belong to Jesus? Then rejoice. Be a help to those around you to do the same. Uh, be like Jesus. When people come near you, it should make others happy. Let unrestrained happiness burst out of you. Let's, let's be a people who stop tempering it, who stop keeping a lid on it, a people who leap and loudly exclaim and let our souls delight in God. Not a people who are afraid of ridicule, who are afraid of looking silly and wondering what other people would think. Who cares what other people think? Um, what would be ridiculous is like bursting out with expressions of joy because of what Jesus has done. That's not ridiculous. What's ridiculous is knowing our God and not doing that. That's ridiculous. We should be a people of, of great joy. And that joy should reach our faces. Like, we've got to stop hiding behind the excuse that we just have, like, resting angry faces. Like, find joy in Jesus and then make sure your face gets the memo. And, and like, while you're at it, like... Make sure your hands and feet and everything else gets the memo too. Uh, many Sundays uh, when we're singing, um, you might have seen this. If you have the courage to sit close enough to see it, unlike Phil who hides against the back wall for safety. But if you have the courage to sit up here and you're close enough to see it, um, one of the things that you will see many Sundays is you'll see Ava and Jude down here in the front uh, while we're singing. And every time while we're singing, they are just like dancing with each other, singing the songs. A few weeks ago, I couldn't help but just break out a smile because um, the song started to play and Ava was coloring. And I just hear Jude exclaim, come on, Ava, let's twirl. <laughs> and <clears throat> sadly, sadly, in a few years, Jude is probably going to feel embarrassed if somebody overhears him saying that, but he shouldn't be. Uh, when when I heard Jude exclaim that and extend the invitation to Ava to come and twirl because the gospel was being sung about, like I didn't think how silly, how how childish. Uh, I I felt embarrassed that it has been far too long since I have invited somebody to twirl when the good news of Jesus was sung about. So so here's our homework. This is your homework. I I'm gonna I'm gonna pray here in just a moment, and then we're going to sing. And as we sing these songs, as we go into our week, grow up. Like, grow up and act like Ava and Jude a little bit more. This week, try to be a little bit more mature and twirl once in a while. Twirl to the good news of the gospel. Let, let's be a people who give up our childish need to appear grown up. 
and instead display a real mature response to Jesus, which apparently Luke says includes leaping and shouting and singing, because he is fully deserving of your unrestrained joy. The, <laughs> the Pharisees... The Pharisees told Jesus, they said, hey, tell your disciples to keep a lid on it. And Jesus said, uh, the rocks will cry out if they stop, right? You can give all of your unrestrained joy in response to Jesus. And I promise you, when you've exhausted all of it and you've been as ridiculous as you can think to be, Jesus will still deserve more. Um, let's be a people who rejoice.